0: In 1st and now 2nd Samuel, narrative essentially tells a story. And oftentimes, narrative presents a challenge to us as biblical interpreters with regard to the message that that story is telling. It's more difficult, it's more challenging to pull a message out of narrative material than, say, sometimes the epistles of the New Testament. They'll come right out and say what the propositional truth is. Oftentimes, in a story, There is no declarative statement as to who's wrong and who's right. We have to read the story. We have to take all factors into consideration and see why that story has been included in the biblical text. So when we study narrative, one question that a careful student will ask himself or herself is this. Why did the biblical author, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, choose this particular incident to include? What point does the story make or illustrate? And where is the biblical author going with this? Why include this story as opposed to 100 or 200 or 300 other stories that could have been included? These are all selective histories. So why this one? And why at this point in the book? Frank Holt, who's the ancient history professor over at the University of Houston in their classics department, and classics department is also one of the best lecturers that I've ever sat under, used to say... All historians write with a purpose in mind. They strive for objectivity, but all are ultimately making a point. If one writes the history of the Revolutionary War, for example, the amount of information that, that one could pull from is massive, absolutely massive. An historian will carefully sift through that material and select certain incidents to stress in the writing of that history while leaving hundreds or even thousands of other stories untold. Why pick those particular stories? The result is, let's say the Revolutionary War, some histories will stress Washington and his leadership. Other stories might stress, or other histories might stress, the Continental Army and the great sacrifice that they made, serving at their own expense oftentimes, and rarely getting paid, certainly never getting paid on time. Or it could stress, say, Franklin or Jefferson, in their role in France, in the diplomatic role in winning the war, the Revolutionary War. The information is so massive, every historian has to be selective about what they choose to write. And it's no different than with the biblical authors. The reason I bring this up at this point is that in our narrative tonight, it's going to be a story largely about three men. David, who we know, Abner, who we've met before, but I'll remind you who he is, and Joab, who is David's nephew. When it's all said and done, after reading this particular episode, we might be tempted to think that David was wrong to condemn Joab for what he does here, especially what he does to Abner. But when we carefully consider all the factors surrounding this episode, we're going to see that Joab might very well have done something right, but he did it in a wrong way. And when you do a right thing in a wrong way, it makes it wrong in God's plan. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong in God's plan. Now, a right thing done in a wrong way might be found under Marxism. The ends justifies the means. That might be okay in Marxism, but it's not okay in God's plan. And I think once we get all through this, and it's, it's quite a long narrative, but when we get to the end of it, if you're like me, you're going to have some sympathies for Joab here tonight. At least I did. I'll be front about that. I have some sympathies for what Joab did in this narrative. But at the end of the day, what Joab did was wrong, and I'll show you why it was. So it was a right thing. Maybe just, justice might have been served, but it was administered in a very wrong way. So that made the whole episode wrong in God's plan a right thing must be done in a right way so of those three major characters of course we already know David the second character the one that we've met before but I want to introduce to you again tonight is a man named Abner Abner was a cousin of Saul and Abner was also the leader of Saul's army you recall Abner was the leader of Saul's army when David as a young man came and fought Goliath and for a temporary period of time then David was the leader of Saul's army or perhaps even a co-leader with Abner. But Abner is Saul's cousin, and he's the leader of the army. Somehow, apparently, he has survived the battle of Mount Gilboa, where Saul and Jonathan were both killed. How he survives, we don't know. He was a man who was trusted by Saul. He was the leader of his forces. He even ate at Saul's table. He was a relative of Saul's. Abner is no stranger to David. The third person that is going to be a major character in our narrative tonight is a man named Joab. And I have to admit that Joab is one of the most perplexing characters that we find in 2 Samuel. Actually, in the whole of the David story, there doesn't seem to be anybody that's quite as much of an enigma as Joab. Joab was the half-nephew of David, the son of David's half-sister, Zeruiah. Zeruiah was a daughter of David's mother through Nahash. Old Testament scholars are uncertain as just to who Nahash was, But most have concluded that he was David's mother's first husband, and that this Nahash had probably died. And then after Nahash died, David's mother, who is unnamed, married Jesse, and then had a multitude of children through Jesse. It's a bit convoluted, but the bottom line is that Joab was David's nephew, but he was probably very close to David's age, if not older than David. Keep that in mind as these narratives progress. For example, my Uncle Tommy, who died when he was 25, was my mother's much younger brother. My mom and Uncle Tommy had different fathers, and Mom's was, I think, 17 years older than Tommy. And so growing up, Tommy was more like my big brother than my uncle. Four years separated us. It's something like that with Joab. So even though he's a nephew, don't think he's a little squirt and David's quite a bit older. He might have been, given, if you do the math, he might have actually been older than David. That's Joab. Joab, we're going to find, is a pretty intense guy. There's a lot to like about Joab. He's intensely loyal to David. And that worked in his favor, and sometimes it didn't. We're going to see him be the one that actually is complicit in the murder of Uriah the Hittite. David doesn't mind using Joab when he needs to use Joab, but then he's got a problem with Joab, and the problem starts tonight. He's very loyal to David, but there's also very little indication in the text that he shares David, the intensity that David had with regard to love toward Yahweh. Nothing is really ever said that would make us think that Joab was a particularly spiritual person. I really have no doubt that he was a believer in Yahweh. I don't think David would have kept him around. He likes to not put him in the position he put him in. But in terms of the intensity of spiritual life, I don't think he matches David. Of course, who did? That's David back in those days. So that's Joab. As we ended last time, David had been anointed king over Judah, the southern kingdom, if you will. Now in verses 8 through 11, we find Abner, Saul's cousin and the general, taking it upon himself to make one of Saul's surviving sons, ish king over the rest of Israel. Look at verse 8. But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken ish son of Saul, and brought him over to manah and he made him king over Gilead. I want to emphasize that perhaps a different way. And he made him king over Gilead. The question is, who gave Abner the right... To crown Ishbosheth or anyone else king. Abner knew that God had anointed David through Samuel. He knew that. It's going to come up later. But there's not going to be any influence or power for Abner in the Davidic kingdom. So he made him king. One quick note: there were probably about five years that pass between the end of chapter. 2 Verse 7 and chapter 2 Verse 8. From the time that David is made king over Judah to the time that Abner makes Ishbosheth king over the northern tribes, about five years has elapsed. It's taken him a while to get around to everybody and work this political intrigue out. We need to recognize at this point and keep this in mind throughout this narrative that Abner is not one of the good guys. He and David know each other very well. But Abner's loyalties belong to Abner, not David, and certainly not Yahweh. So keep that in mind as we see what Abner does and then what happens to Abner. Abner is not one of the good guys. I'm not going to say at this point that what happened to him was right, or at least it wasn't done in the right way. But he's not one of the good guys. That's what makes this such a complicated narrative. Keep that in mind. So we have the southern kingdom under Davidic control, or at least the nation Judah, under Davidic control, the other tribes under the control of Ishbosheth, but really under the control of Abner because he's the power behind the throne. As you might expect, armed conflict becomes inevitable. And so eventually it came about that Joab led a force slightly north of Hebron to face Abner and the armies of the north as they moved down. And they meet by the, the pool of Gibeon. One group was on one side of the pool, another, the other group was on the other side. Perhaps during this meeting, there was an attempt to negotiate a peaceful settlement between the two groups. If that was the case, all we know is that it didn't work out. And so they decided, as was customary in the ancient days, that they would send a small group out from both the armies, both the army of David and the army of Ishbosheth, or to put it with the commanders that were there, the army of Joab. But remember, Joab belongs to David. The army of Joab and the army of Abner. They meet around this pool. They can't negotiate a settlement. So they say, instead of everybody fighting, let's send 12 of our choice men out. They can meet in the middle or meet at a prescribed place. They can fight it out. Whoever wins, wins. You've heard about this before, haven't you? Similar to what Goliath challenged with regard to the Israelites. This was not that unusual in ancient cultures, to send one hero out to battle, and whoever won that, then they'd settle it right there. Patton wanted to do this in World War II, but nobody would let him. (laughs) Nobody would agree with it. He was such an ancient historian himself. So these 12 men on both sides go out, 24 men. They go out to the place of battle. They meet in the middle. Each of them grabs the other person by the head and stabs the other one in the belly all at the same time, all simultaneously, all of them are dead, all 24. The plan doesn't work. So what do you do when all 24 champions, 12 on each side, die? Then it's on. Both the armies get into it. At that point, the army of Joab, the army of David, routes the army of Abner. And that chase ensues. And this is where we'll pick up the narrative in verse... 18. Now the three sons of Zerariah were there, Joab and Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. And Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or the left following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself. Take him for yourself for his spoil. Nice guy. He said, don't kill me. Kill one of these guys over here. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. And Abner repeated again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt of the end of the spear, so that the spear came out his back, and he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all that came to the place where Asahel had fallen stood still. Many of those who were in this pursuit stopped to honor Asahel, but two didn't Joab and Abishai. They're Asahel's brothers. Joab and Abishai keep up the pursuit of Abner, and finally they catch him on a hill, but he's not by himself. He's surrounded by men from the tribe of Benjamin, which were known to be great warriors. Now look down at verses 26 and 27. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each following his own brother. Joab's right here. This is Abner's fault. Abner's the one that started this. Not just even at the negotiations, apparently, but even before. Abner's the one that's power-hungry, and he wanted Ishbosheth to become king. So Joab has a point here. You tell me to turn back. How long do you want me to let this violence go on? You're the one that started this. But the two men do call a truce. This is one of the good moments for Joab. And Joab returns to bury his brother. Remember, the brother's also a nephew of David. Keep that in mind when we consider David's response. This is his relative that's been killed. But in spite of the truce, from this point on, Joab carries with him a grudge, a bad attitude toward Abner, which is understandable, but not spiritual. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's an Old Testament concept, and that's a New Testament concept. You can can walk away from it, but if you hold the grudge, you haven't forgiven him. And when you hold a grudge, and when there's vengeance motivation in the life, it usually doesn't turn out well. Some might quip, well, it doesn't turn out well for that guy for sure. You know what? It usually doesn't turn out well for the one that's holding the grudge. And it won't turn out well for Joab. But in this battle, it turns out okay. Immediately it does. Joab's forces end up killing 360 of Abner's forces, and they only lost 19, plus us a helm. The truce, of course, doesn't last. And there ensued a civil war between David and Ishbosheth, between Judah and the rest of Israel. Verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3 then become a parenthesis, which return to the theme that we discussed last week about David's failures. He was great in so many areas, but he fell short when it came to marriage and family. So verses 2 and 3, I'm sorry, 2 through 5 give a list of David's wives, at least six wives to this point. Um, Michal is not mentioned, and of course he hasn't married Bathsheba yet. Now, I want to draw your attention in this list of six wives. I want to draw your attention to two of the sons that are born, just two, because these two are going to come up big time later in the narrative. Amnon, in verse 2, who was David's firstborn, and Absalom, in verse 3. These two fellows are going to figure prominently in the discipline that David receives for the episode with Bathsheba. His firstborn and then his beloved Absalom are both going to be part of that discipline, but they're listed here. It's interesting that the human author under divine inspiration in the midst of this narrative stops and reminds us once again about this negative part of David's life. Some commentators might say, well, this is reminding us of all the prosperity that David had. That'd be like saying, that when, when Solomon talks about all the wives that he's had in Ecclesiastes, he's doing it in a positive way. No, this is a negative. This isn't a positive. It's a listing, but it reminds us of the negative that we saw last time. And then leaving the parenthesis, we go to verse 6. And it came about, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Again, remember, Abner's not a good guy. He's making himself strong in the house of Saul. Ebner wanted power. One way to demonstrate that you were the boss in that culture, and I stress that, in that culture, because this is going to offend our sensibilities, but in that culture, one way to make sure that people knew you were the boss was to sleep with the concubine or some of the concubines of the one who was king. Look at what happens then in verses 7 and 8. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Ai, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, "Why have you gone into my father's concubine?" Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, "Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with guilt concerning the woman." As strange as it seems to us. In that culture, Ishbosheth had the rights to his father's concubines. If anybody was going to sleep with them, it would be Ishbosheth. He is openly challenging Ishbosheth's leadership. In fact, he's taking his nose and he's rubbing it in it that I'm the one that puts you in power. He even says as much in this verse after all I've done for you. After all I've done for you, and now you're going to give me a hard time about sleeping with one of these concubines. He never really denies that he did it. He just gets upset about it. Some theologians today like to incorporate culture into their systematic theology. But usually when that happens, it's done with a great deal of danger. How would you like to say, well, that was a culture back then, so that must be the theology of this passage? Not hardly. It's just mentioned. There's no moral judgment that's made. It was part of the culture of that day. Certainly, because it's part of the culture of that day, it does not mean that it's part of the biblical narrative as far as a prescription for us. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. This is an open power play on Abner's part. He doesn't deny it but he just turns to the old, after all I've done for you card. Then in verse 9, Abner gets irritated to say the least. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has spoken to David, I do not accomplish this for him. Okay, wait a minute, Abner. You already know what God has spoken to David, and you didn't care a bit about it until you were insulted by Ishbosheth, And now you're going to say, I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go over to David. If you're going to insult me like that, then I'm going to make sure you're no longer king at all because he knew if he went over to David, Ishmael shall not stand a chance. He's a fairly weak person to begin with. And then in verse 10, if I do not accomplish this for him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, even from Dan to Beersheba, I'm going to give him the whole thing. I gave it to you. I can take it away from me anytime I want to. Like Bill Cosby used to say in that comedy routine about his kids, he'd take, take a look at him, and say, I brought you in this world. I can take you out and make another one just like you. Well, that's basically what Abner, yeah, never heard that one. That's basically what Abner is saying to Ishbosheth. Again, Abner is not a good guy. In verse 11, and he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. Abner would bring the rest of Israel over to David. The implication, while not stated, it's at least implied in Abner's mind, that in return, if Abner lays the kingdom at David's feet, that David's going to do something nice for Abner. In those cultures, the nice thing that would typically be done would be you would be made the commander of the armies. Who's the commander of the armies right now in David's army? Joab. Now, Abner's pulling a power play. He's going to bring the rest of the tribes over to David. What does Abner, at least culturally, probably expect? Joab's job. Before we ever get to Joab, he's going to show up in a minute. Can you see why Joab might not like this very much? He already hates the guy. And now it's very probable that the guy is working to take his position of leadership. David makes the deal. But interestingly enough, he wants Mikal, his first wife back. You remember Saul took her away and gave her to another man. She's been remarried for some time now, probably at least a decade. I don't think David really loves Michal. I think he wants her back to make a point. We've already got six wives listed here. He can't be lacking for companionship. (laughs) But he wants to make a point. It's also a diplomatic move. We don't think this way, but I want to present it to you. If he has Mikhail back as one of his wives, then he has uh, some diplomacy with the northern tribes because she's Saul's daughter. So it's going to look like we're one big happy family here. He wants her back. A quick note looking into the future, it never works out for them. Mikal never has any children for David. It's never a good union. In fact, well, in fact, let's look at this. So David sent messengers to Isposheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins to the Philistines. And Isposheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. This is a sad scene in verse 16. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. That's a sad, pitiful scene. It's not a good moment for David. He's doing this strictly as a power play himself, and he's ruining this man's life. This isn't a good chapter for David. Once again to Abner in verse 17, he's playing kingmaker. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Look once more. Abner knows full well that David has been anointed by Yahweh to be king over all Israel. And Abner is in his essence saying, Okay, Okay, Now it's okay for you to be king over all Israel. Abner's not a good guy. But you keep that in mind. Because something's going to happen to him, and we're all going to say, or at least if you're like me, you're going to say, you got what's coming to you. But the way it was done was wrong. A right thing done in a wrong way ends up being wrong. And Joab's going to pay for this for a long time. You probably already can figure out what's happening. It's okay as far as Abner's concerned. The time he's okay now, you go ahead. The bad thing about this is that David falls for it. What he's thinking, we don't know. The text never mentions David being in prayer over this. Before he always mentions being in prayer. Should I go up now? Is it time to go up now? Should I go into battle? Will we win the battle? But he doesn't pray about this. It never mentions any reluctance on David's part, here to achieve what God's prom- promised him by human means. For that whole 10 years that he's running, maybe almost 12 years that he's running, he never will take Saul out, even though he has the human means to do it, because he's, I'm going to wait on God's timing. All of a sudden, David throws that out the window, and he takes the deal. He'd never done this before. I would propose that this is totally out of character for David. So in verses 20, through 21, 20 and 21, rather, David makes the deal. There's one person, as you can already imagine, who's not going to like this deal one bit. Joab is not present when the deal is cut between David and Abner. He returns home from a raid done on David's behalf. He's out there working, and he comes home only to find that David has, in essence, cut a deal with the devil. At least in his mind, Abner's the devil. So he confronts David. What is this you've done? Are you out of your mind but to no avail? This is the man who killed my brother, your nephew. His intentions are evil, Joab tells him in verses 23 and 24. David doesn't listen. He apparently doesn't feel the need to explain his actions to one of his subordinates. Nothing is really said about what David thought about this. And here's where Joab's train goes off the track. Pick it up in verse 26. When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Seirah, but David didn't know of it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, he took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him and to speak with him privately. Those gates weren't like the, the fence gates that we have now. Those gates would have been several feet wide. So inside the gate would have been a fairly secluded area, but it would have been a fairly secluded area that was right next to probably a very well-traveled area. So Joab calls Abner. Come here, I want to talk to you for just a second. Pulls him into the middle of the gate, and then he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, this is key. I told you with narrative we've got to take all the clues and figure out what's going on here. The reason Joab kills Abner is not so much that he thinks that Abner is trying to work David. It may not even be so much that he thinks Abner is trying to get his job. Or even that he fears for his own life. He's still mad about Abner killing his brother. This is a vengeance killing, and that's what makes it wrong. People like to talk about executions as though states were taking vengeance. Justice is different from vengeance. Vengeance would be if the family went and, and hunted the person down and killed them in the street. Justice is when the system has worked, and there have been appeals, and, and everything has been checked out, and then the state solemnly and soberly executes a person. This was not that. Joab had no authorization to do this. This was strictly based upon emotion and strictly based upon pent-up anger toward what Abner had done. When David finds out about this, you can imagine he's livid. He immediately proclaims his innocence in the matter, and you can see why he would have to. He's working this deal with Abner to bring the, all the northern tribes down and bring him into one so that they be unified, and one of his men, his general, kills Abner in the process. If the northern tribes think that David had something to do with it, the deal's off. So David immediately disavows himself of anything that Joab has done. And he pronounces a curse on the house of Joab, holding both Joab and his brother Abishai responsible. Apparently, Abishai was there. Look at verse 30. So, Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird your sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bear. It's kind of ironic, really the only punishment at this point that he gives Joab is he's going to put a curse on his house, and then he makes Joab be the one to go out and tell all the people they need to come to the funeral. In this case, David was doing more of what was expedient than what was right. He needed Joab. Joab is his hit man. Joab is his right-hand man, and he's not going to discipline him. He curses him. All these bad things happen to you and your house, but he still employs him. I love David. My son is named after David, King David. But when he does something that's not great, we've got to admit it. And this chapter is not a great chapter for David. Was Abner a bad guy with bad intentions? Answer is yes. Seems always was. Was Joab right in killing him? No, he wasn't. He had no authority to do so. Joab worked for David. David's the only one that could give him authority to kill Abner. And since David didn't do it, Joab was wrong for executing Abner. Now, had David said to do it under the custom, under the law of Israel at that time, Joab would have been justified. David's already told people to go stab that guy and kill him. Remember the one that brought the news about Saul? That wasn't a murder. That was an execution. But this is a murder. The king should have made this call, not Joab. It was a right thing for Joab to do to want justice in the case of Abner. He was right for wanting to defend David from Abner's evil intentions. He may even have been right to want to defend himself against Abner, who would have probably taken his place as leader of the armies and probably done away with Joab. But even if he did a right thing, he did it in the wrong way. And that made it wrong, and that's the point of this story. The chapter ends with David mourning Abner, much like he mourns Saul. I have to say, though, that verse 38 seems a bit over the top to me. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? David's poured it on a little heavy here, I think. As the chapter ends... David finally evokes the name of the Lord, but not in prayer. He evokes the name of the Lord as he curses Joab. Verse 39, And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zerariah, that's his sister, by the way, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. So he evokes the name of the Lord as he curses Joab. I see no heroes in this chapter. David's not a hero here. Abner's certainly not a hero. And Joab, not really a hero because he sought revenge, not justice. David seems to resort to human means to establish what God has promised him. First time he's done that. Abner's in it for himself from beginning to end. Joab allows hatred and revenge motivation to get the best of him. The moral to the story a right thing must be done in a right. Thing.